And I think Wilde, he would love Kim Kardashian because she is like an artist and a work of art and her image proliferates all over the world and influences millions of people just because she like wears her hat a certain way or buys a certain shoe, like changes the world. All right. So a lot of people generally think of Oscar Wilde as a kind of hedonist, gay, socialist dandy. But it's not that simple, is it? No. Yeah. Pull the mic up a bit. Yeah. That's... There's some truth there, but it really, the, I, I, I'm of the opinion that most people, including academics, have Wild almost totally wrong. So um, he's a consumer modernist. That's, I wrote a book where I make that argument, Modernist Aesthetics and Consumer Culture in the, in the Writings of Oscar Wilde. But, I mean, I, what does that mean? Um, he, instead of, like Marx, kind of wanting art and culture to be separate from the consumer world where things are getting you know liquefied and damaged and destroyed by marketing and and sales wild dives right into that into the big theaters of london which is connected to the malls and the fashions and the fashion plates and and the women who are displaying the fashions um he's got this play called lady windermere's fan and that's the fan is this major item in the play and it's a major item in the mall and like and like it's all mm. connected for wild but it's and it's connected in that material way but it's also his whole philosophy of art is a kind of phenomenology of consumerism um which he never spelled out fully but it's it's and i guess that's what needs to be done and maybe i should need i need to do that further <laughs> um with another book on wild but um but yeah, so I th- and 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 that's why he's so important because we kind of need a phenomenology of consumerism today because we're in an inescapably accelerating consumer world um, where things are liquefying and and transmitting across the entire world through YouTube and through the internet and through social media, which is doing a lot of damage to culture and people, but it has these positive artistic possibilities that wild was able to like focus on. Okay, great. So let's, let's try to unpack that because I'll, so I guess I'll, one line of thought would be that capitalism and consumer culture just obliterates art and traditional values. But there is another line of thought that might say that in this phenomenology of the consumer, there is also a kind of redemptive possibility. There is um, this way in which consumer culture can somehow kind of revivify or reconstitute, you know, true value or beauty or truth. Or how, what is that phenomenology of consumer culture? You know, make, make the case for what exactly Oscar Wilde's phenomenology was. That is the question. Let me see if I can get at it. Um, because, you know, let me step back and talk about like ancient culture. So, um, and I, I think this will get at the question. Like Eliot, T.S. Eliot, wrote about like his definition of culture. He wrote a thing called "Notes Towards a Definition of Culture," and he says all the great civilizations grew out of a religion. 
the Jewish religion and the Jewish culture, the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks, Islam, Christianity, that to have a culture that's going to sustain beauty and art and, and, and real culture, you needed like a kind of unified religion. Mm. And he looks at the modern world. He's like, he's in, he's in England at the time. And he's like, you know, we have this multicultural England and we're in trouble because we don't have a unified culture. And, and he, he was looking at the world. This was like right before World War II. And he's like, people are turning towards Marxism and fascism because those are strong gods. And like this kind of multicultural, democratic liberalism, it doesn't have the strong gods. It's like wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, it, and it can't, and it's creating crap. It's creating, instead of creating great works of art, like there's like these mass produced, like really ugly things. Right. And, and so people were turning towards fascism and, and, and communism. Well, and he was partly right, but I think he was wrong because I think that wishy-washy liberal democratic capitalism won. And, and I think it's going to, I mean, it's still not totally won, but I mean, it's, it's winning and it's not going away. And, and it's accelerated. And, and there is the possibility of great art, culture, and lifestyles in that. And while he was a little bit earlier, but he could see that, I think, even in his time. He was like at the heart of London, at the heart of consumer culture, the theater, the fashion, the actresses, the actors. Um, he himself was kind of like a work of art. And, and so, um, so, yeah, so... Now, how does that answer the question? Um, let me think about this because, um, he, well, I, let's look at what he did. So, yeah. he wrote these extremely popular and and and, and money making plays at the, at the like the equivalent of Hollywood. Really, mm. these were like the biggest actors in the biggest theaters. They didn't have film yet at that time, but if if it was, it would have been that. Um, so, like, he would be like Steven Spielberg. He would be, like, you know, making a lot of money in the mass audience, not in, like, a nice coterie, like, like theater. He was in the big place. Um, and he was making great works of art, which were, like, I was thinking, like, they're basically, like, platonic dialogues on... He's, like, he's not keeping it just for the academics. He's like, let's bring this to the masses. And they're not going to get a lot of it. Um, but let's... They are going to get it. I mean, he's going to transform culture, and he's going to produce beautiful and transformative culture in that mass audience place. Um, And he he also wrote, you know, less popular things. Like he did write some theoretical works where he kind of worked these out in more detail. And he wrote fairy tales too. I mean, like he was really a popular fairy tale writer, like that kids could read. Um, as well as adults, but they were that, that was a similar thing where you had um, a story of like a fisherman and a and a witch and like a mermaid, but it's got this deep philosophical thought and culture embedded in it that that can transform you, like like a platonic dialogue, I would say. So I don't know. That's one quick take on it. Yeah, right. So what I'm hearing from you is that he represents this kind of vision whereby deeper ideas can be made successful on the market, not just, you know, made to survive on the market, but that you can actually produce 
market dominating products, market dominating cultural works of art um, that are also sophisticated and deep and um, representative of kind of really high high culture values right right and so what what was it that he saw that was unique or what was it that um in how he operated that 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 was unique like what 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 makes him a kind of unique uh theorist or practitioner of this this idea you call consumer modernism well let me let me take an example I, i i think this will help in the play, pull, pull the mic up a bit, if you will. Yeah. In the play, An Ideal Husband, um, there's a female character. She's the bad guy named Mrs. Chevely, and she's blackmailing the main character, Sir Robert. And anyway, she is a kind of icon of his idea. She is an artist a work of art, she's producing herself as a work of art, a beautiful image that like shines, that has, that startles, that produces awe. Um, so, and, and she, she talks about herself in this way. And she says that in her conversation with Sir Robert, just before she, she blackmails him, they're talking and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, he is saying, they're talking about men and women and um, she says, uh, women um, can't be analyzed. Men can be analyzed. Um, women can't be analyzed. They can only be adored. Okay, what does that mean? And then she said, and he says, so, so you, you think uh, women represent the irrational? And she says, well-dressed women do. And that's a great line, well-dressed women do. And it's like one of the key lines in my, in my book. Um, in the sense that, like, the woman of fashion, or man, but let's stick with women, are the Dionysian side of culture. And, like, and she's playing with you know, the masculine, feminine. Okay, masculine tends to be more logos. Women mm. tend to be more pathos or, or Dionysian and, and chaotic. Not chaotic in the negative sense, but like in, the, in the kind of creative sense. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and so Wilde was playing with these ideas <coughs> where just like Nietzsche was, just like Freud was. So he's like just with, he's right with them, but he's bringing it into the world of fashion. And, and which makes a lot of sense. And actually, it's, it, I was looking at this cool fact, factoid. So Freud is developing all of his psychological theories and looking at like the Oedipus complex and like the inner workings of the human psyche and, and consciousness. And his nephew, Edward Bernays, who was uh, his, his, his wife's uh, brother's daughter, anyway, son, anyway, becomes the big theorist of advertising culture in New York City and, and like, was selling ivory soap and, like, figuring out how to, like, get women to smoke cigarettes and, like, marketing it to them. Um, so, so this, like, this unconscious part of the human person is totally embedded in consumer culture and in art, they work the same way, I guess. I mean, I, and I think Wilde got onto that, as probably Freud and Bernays did. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think um, these women of fashion are, are icons of what Wilde was up to. And I kind of jokingly say, 
like he would love Kim Kardashian because she is like an artist and a work of art and her image proliferates all over the world and influences millions of people and like just because she like wears her hat a certain way or buys a certain shoe like changes the world um, and you can say like okay that's that's like oh that, they're just slaves of fashion people just follow that slavishly they're, they're not there's nothing intellectual there well yes there is I mean and, and like not 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 everything is conscious there's this unconscious and she I, I don't know really that know much about her to be honest <laughs> but she can help people be beautiful she can help people people be more creative about their own look and, and their own identity so it's interesting that Oscar Wilde seems perceptive to a fact that was still really early in its historical development. Nowadays, it seems very clear and almost obvious that one can build a kind of massive brand around oneself as a kind of work of art. You mentioned the example of Kardashian as just one high-profile example, but it's pretty impressive that Oscar Wilde could intuit this dynamic even in a context before smartphones, before, you know, personal broadcasting abilities were opened up to all individuals. And so it just makes me wonder if he was able to see this at such an early stage, what kinds of insights or tricks or lessons could we draw from his work on how to play this game, how to win this game? He clearly saw it more clearly than, than others, earlier than others. So... I'm just curious what lessons we can draw from him and his work and his life. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say it's not, I mean, it can be done in a crass and stupid way, if I can put it that way, where um, people create a personal brand by just being shocking and, and like <laughs> right. um, just being weird and like, okay, or, or just, yeah, just saying something that's just sensational. Um, and obviously that, that that's done. Um, and people sometimes looked at Wilde and said that, that that's what he was doing. I mean, I mean, he was not above kind of just being a bit zany. Um, and people thought he was just uh, trying to get attention. Just right. Know, yeah. So like, and, 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 and here's the story of his life. So he finishes college. He was doing grad school at Oxford. He didn't really get an academic career going. So he goes back to London um, having not really written much and declares himself a poet. He hadn't like written any real poetry um, and, and goes around like art galleries and theaters dressed up in aesthetic dress and kind of long hair and like this kind of, he had his brand. Um, the famous uh, green carnation, right? Isn't that right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So a totally unnatural flower, um, like artificial, like, like celebrating artificiality. I see. Um, and, uh, and he started to make money doing it because um, Gilbert and Selvin did a play that made fun of these these aesthetes, these these aesthetic figures like himself. So they hired him to give his aesthetic lectures to promote their play, which was called Patience. Hmm. And 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 the play, it, it's um, it's this funny musical. Which which shows how silly these esthetes are, and like they they walk around carrying flowers and stuff, and and um, professing their love of art and everything. Um, and Wilde had no problem making fun of himself in order to make a living. 
So like here he was like giving his aesthetic lectures and like people were just like looking at him like a weirdo. Um, and then they'd go and watch the play and, and then the play would make money. Gilbert himself would make money. And then they would pay him for, for promoting their play. And he traveled all over the United States doing this. Hmm. This is how he traveled around the United States at the age of like 24. He had like accomplished nothing in life except to be like a kind of poster boy for aestheticism. Um, so he, yeah, somehow he intuited this. I, I mean, he just stumbled into so it. So he wasn't marketing his own place. He was just doing lectures right. in this kind of provocative way that garnered attention. Right. And he was selling other people's plays. He was selling another, other people's plays. And this was before he did any of his own work at all? or Well, he had written some things, but nothing really good. I nothing mean, that anyone knew about or um, cared about. Yeah. I, so he, he actually got his um, notoriety before accomplishing anything artistic? Exactly. Fascinating. Exactly. Okay. So then you would think, I mean, he, if he was just a stupid, you know, self-promoter, then he would have gone away. But he had great ideas. And I think he learned from that experience. He goes back to London. He's friends with a lot of these famous actresses. Um, and, and he's seeing that they are promoting their own brands. And there was like the biggest actress of the, of the age. She was also the mistress of, of the prince uh, was Lily Langtree. And so he became like her promoter and he would like go to her first views and like carry a flower up to her and like provocatively like do these things and get his name in the paper and get people to like make fun of him. Um, and she would promote him and he would promote her. And, and then he starts writing. So he starts writing poetry. He starts writing plays. Um, they weren't, they, he was just starting out. They weren't that good. They were not his best stuff. Um, but yeah, so he learned because he was, immersed in that material right from the beginning. One of, I think his roommate at the time was an artist who would do paintings and drawings of Lily Langtree and the wild would write poems about her. So they were, they were all like promoting each other at the same time. Um, so, you know, I mean, she was like kind of like a Kim Kardashian of the age in that whatever she wore, people paid attention to it and then they went and bought it or bought similar stuff. Well, a lot of people, when they hear these types of things, they think that the drive to attract attention, the drive to build a brand around oneself, that these things tend to be in tension with artistic value and and truth and beauty. This is, I think, just a lot of people's presumption. And people will often lament, even today, they'll, they'll lament you know, the obsession with personality, the the personal branding and all of this often um, in, in on, on the assumption that this has detracted from our, the, the creation of real artistic value that today an obsession with personality and brand has kind of replaced in a in a lamentable way the old traditional focus on on genuine, noble, aristocratic cultivation is there truth to this or is there no truth to this is, you know, how do you, how do you think about that question? I say, yeah, certainly there's truth to that in the sense that it can be done badly and in poor taste and in a crass way just to make money quickly. And that's done all the time. And how do we know the difference between the good kind and the bad kind? How, how do we know? It seems like you, you would believe that Oscar Wilde is an example of someone who used these mechanisms to, kind of bootstrap his own genuinely impressive and significant, you know, cultural work later on. But it seems like, you know, 
someone like Kim Kardashian is maybe a less impressive example in that regard. Right. So, right. you know, w- what are the differences there? How do you think about that? Yeah. Or, or like even people who have done like, like Alex Jones, people who like actually like do damage to culture and like, um, hurt people, um, by making a, a kind of splash online and stuff. Um, and I mean, I guess it's like, it's the marketplace of ideas. Is this the answer that, I mean, what's, it's the way that the canon of literature and art has developed, developed at all times is what's, what lasts. Uh, and, and I feel like that's a little bit of a, of a cop out because, um, if you have a lot of money, you can make stuff last a long time. But, but I think there is a truth there that, that, um, that you can see like Wilde's work has lasted. I mean, his plays are still done today. Um, I think that's a, a fairly good answer for what it's worth. I, I tend to agree with that. Okay. Yeah. It, I, I mean, I think if, if it lasts, it's Lindy, right? And if it doesn't last that, you know, no, no amount of money can force something to resonate forever. And so if, if it seems to resonate forever, there's probably something authentic to it. Right. And like, I mean, like to take a crass example, like pornography, you can always make money with pornography because there's always going to be a market for it. Just like, you know, prostitution or whatever. Um, but, you know, and, and it, it will, I mean, it will pornography take down our civilization. It might actually, <laughs> I hope it doesn't, but I don't think it will because I think, um, people will come up with ways to protect themselves and protect culture, um, in a way that they can keep culture going. I mean, people, I, I guess I have enough hope in the human in human humanity that people are going to figure that out. Um, and those who don't figure it out will, will crash and burn and destroy right. themselves. I mean, so, um, I guess, yeah, I have that kind of a, a, a strange optimism. So it might just be the case that the mechanisms of consumer modernism are available equally to genuine artists and hucksters. And to some degree, they can be utilized by both. But what stands the test of time um, is going to be what shows itself as as the genuinely valuable works of art. Yes, and I, I guess... I teach at a university, and I guess a crucial element of that is we need education. <laughs> so um, yeah. people need to be educated. People need to like learn great literature and great art, so that they're not just completely bought over into this this like bad stuff. Um, but as long as we have education, and so you, know. you talk about in the book that Oscar Wilde was basically a kind of professional networker. Talk a little bit more about that. I think it was already coming up in in what you were saying a a few minutes ago when you were talking about how his trajectory as a kind of paid lecturer doing essentially marketing for other plays kind of segues into his network of people basically writing about each other. Um, But talk a little bit more about that because it's again, it's reminiscent of, of what today we call social networking, right? Where so much today, so much of culture seems to be running on, uh, these like contemporary digital social networks. Right. So I would just love to, to hear more about what his networking life was like and, and, and what did it mean for someone like Oscar Wilde to build his career on professional networking? So, yeah. So Wilde is back in London. He's writing poetry. It's not the best poetry, to be honest. It didn't make him any money either. 
Um, <clears throat> so he starts writing for the newspapers, the Paul, the Pell Mell Gazette, which is like just a very regular daily newspaper, um, like art criticism, theater criticism. But then he becomes the editor of the Women's World, which is like a major women's magazine, which is bizarre. Like, a, a, imagine a philosopher like editing like. Mm. Women's Day today or something like right. that. Cosmopolitan. I mean, Cosmopolitan, yeah. right. So, um, but part of it was he was doing his theorizing and he was networking. He was in contact with all these women artists and writers and the wives of male like theater producers. This is how he ends up getting into the theater, um, which is also kind of bizarre for, for like this, what I'm calling a philosopher and, and poet. Um, and so, yeah, so he, and, and there's also the art galleries. And so he was friends with James McNeil Whistler, a uh, major uh, impressionist painter of the time. He, they, were friend, they were frenemies, actually. They, they ended up having a falling out. But, um, but they would go to the art galleries and, and, and hang out with the women the, that, that Whistler was painting. And they were famous, you know, actresses in many cases mm. um, like I was talking about so there, there was these overlapping of these worlds and then there's the fashion designers like the the men designing the dresses and it was interesting like a lot of them were men who were the ones designing the dresses at the time uh, Worth was was like this French guy um, designing a lot of the expensive dresses so and then in that world there was also like politicians like he became friends with um the guy who became the prime minister of England, um, Balfour, and and because he was involved in this world as well, uh, and there were other ones I can't remember the names exactly right now, but but um, so yeah, so he consciously inserted himself into all these social networks. You know, they didn't have um, social networks, so he had to like physically do it. Mm-hmm. And he was at the art galleries and at the theaters and meeting with the women, and yeah, so that that's how he did it. Um, and this was crucial to his success or how did it, or was it incidental to his success? It was crucial. I mean, like when he wrote his books, so he wrote, wrote these um, collections of fairy tales. Uh, he'd always dedicate them to one of these famous women. And that, that would be like crucial, like, cause then like they would help promote it for him. Um, and he meets people who are in the theater. Um, and gosh, was it Ellen Terry was like oh, another one of these famous actresses and her p- domestic partner was a, a play producer. So he becomes friends with him and then he's able to start writing plays for the major play producers and directors of the era um, so that they become smash hits. I mean, like what we would consider like, you know, real f- feature film smash hits like they made it. They went they would run for like many, many, many weeks. Um, so people wanted more of his plays. Um, so yeah, so he was an expert at this and, and, um, and, you know, I wanted to draw in religion for a second. Yeah. Cause one of the things that people don't, don't get about wild is his religious impulse, which was always there really. If you look at it, um, even in his college years, he's like really interested in religion and Christianity, Catholicism especially. Um, and Catholicism and, and Anglicanism, for that matter, are really material religions. 
which capitalized on the material culture, almost the consumer culture of religion. If you think about the rituals, the garb of the priests, the bells, the sounds, the music, the art in the, in the, in the uh, churches, um, the artistic music that, that was, was produced. And, and so now you get to Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And Dorian Gray in the novel is this young man who um, becomes, among other things, enamored of the, the lit- liturgy and the beauty of, of the liturgy, the ritual, the, the, the music, the motions, the, the, the bowing. It's, it's, a, it's like a little concert. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he would collect like the, the priestly um, vestments because he, he just loved them so much and bring them home. And like, it, people thought he was going to become a Catholic, Dorian Gray, um, which is ironic because then Wilde himself ends up becoming a Catholic. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is it's not ironic. Actually, it fits perfectly with, with what was going on in Wilde's life. On his deathbed, he became a Catholic, um, which is also bizarre because he was also like known as as a very outlandish, like rule breaking, amoral type right. person. Um, so, how does that work together? Well, that's a whole long, long story in itself. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, that they do go together in his life. That's that's the amazing thing. And and I guess it's partly through the kind of materiality of of the fashions, the materiality of the liturgies. Um, that, that he was working with materiality. You think that's fascinating. Well, just because as I listen to the story, as you tell it, the way he leaned on and channeled these mechanisms of, of cultural building that today, and I, I, I suspect uh, throughout time have generally been seen as superficial and as almost a betrayal of the deeper, truer, you know, artistic uh, or intellectual calling um, you know, whether that's like personal brand, you know, uh, provocations and attention seeking or, you know, cultural success through personal networking, which, you know, is often seen as a kind of cheat. It's like a cheat code, right? Or it's like a backdoor way to um, make your cultural work successful, not the real way, not the earned way of, of just producing good work. Yeah. The way that he leaned on these on these mechanisms to great effect, it it's like it seems to me to suggest a kind of like old hidden source code of how culture actually operates and perhaps always has. And, and so it's maybe not so much a cheat code or a kind of superficial, you know, um, like betrayal of genuine cultural work, but maybe just a laying bare, a kind of transparent, showcasing of how the sausage has always been made? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was teaching in my class the other day um, Marxist thought in Althusser. And Althusser, um, I forget the name of the, of the essay, talks about ISAs, ideological state apparatuses. And Althusser says these ideological state apparatuses, sometimes it's like this, it's the police and it's the army. And they're just oppressing people, and it's oppressing uh, on in favor of the ruling class. But then there are also these ideological apparatuses, which are like the church, the school, the sports teams. It's like it's really it's like everything. All these consumer 
it's all not, it's not all consumer, but a lot of it's consumer stuff. Like even like the fashions, these are oppressive structures that the state is using and that the ruling class is using to oppress all these poor, exploited working class people. And that's why I say Wilde is the opposite of a Marxist because he says, no, that's all good. That's this is all legitimate and good artistic material that a good artist is going to use. And obviously, yeah, it can be oppressive, and it, and and it's bad when it's oppressive. But um, the the social classes are never going to go away. It the hierarchy, the hierarchical structure of society is not an evil in and of itself. It's actually, it's it's just a, it's neither good nor bad. It's just what it is. And these ISAs that Alter uh, Sert identified as uh, as oppressive are the tools of his trade. I mean, like that's good stuff for him. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's pause on that. So you said that, well, so first of all, Wilde obviously wrote favorably about socialism at times. Right. But you say that he, you see him as the opposite of Marx because he wants to turn these, these realities of consumer culture into positive artistic materials. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he wrote a famous essay called the the soul of man under socialism. And he kind of theorizes a nice socialistic future where everyone's going to be equal and everything people will just do work that they want to do and and i i read that essay as a thought experiment that's not really interested in socialism in a way it's actually arguing more for capitalism and i it's been a while since i read it actually so i can't remember the exact argument but but no he's not a socialist i mean he's the opposite i mean he's not a communist i mean he's not a marxist i mean maybe we could sort of say there's like a, a kind of um, array of different socialisms, and maybe he could fall into one of those, but one that's definitely involved with capitalism, consumer culture, and all that other stuff. So, yeah, he's he's a consumer um, theorist. It's fascinating. This is these are all sides of Oscar Wilde that I think most people don't really know that much about. Everyone kind of assumes he's a socialist. He is um, a kind of hedonistic, as as you said, kind of pleasure seeking figure. But it turns out as we as we dig deeper. He's not as socialist as people think. He's actually more uh, even Catholic than people realized. He has a deathbed conversion at the end of his life. Talk a little bit more about how these things connect, right? It's like, is there a kind of Catholic, what is the Catholic reading to this phenomenology of consumer culture, as you call it in the book, this interest in the benefits of superficiality, the obsession with you know, fashions and uh, material things and the, all, all of these things that are generally seen as superficial, he seems to see something deeper and more meaningful there. Is there like a deeper Catholic reading on all of this? I think so. And I'm going to struggle to articulate it. Let me see if I can say something. I think, and I'm a Catholic, so like I'm biased in this, in this sense, but or I definitely have an investment in this issue. But I think it's that um, I mean, Catholic culture has always been material, and people had like their prayer cards and their candles and their rituals, mm. and and so I mean, even James Joyce picks this up in in uh, Ulysses, make, making fun of Catholicism for the most part, but he sees that yeah, Catholicism was doing a lot of this consumer work early on 
and, and, and strategically. And like, this is how they were getting, they were doing the ISAs. They knew that these were ideological <laughs> state apparatuses that, that they could use because people were, well, for many years illiterate. So how do we, how do we educate people on stuff? And, and so they used these things and, and even the theater, like the, the, the mystery plays and the, um, that were so influenced on Shakespeare were these like Catholic plays that, educated people on, on, on what their what their lives what's the story of their lives what, what, what are their identities and this is like so like what is your identity who you are like is crucial to this it's not it's not just a superficial thing um, like who like and and wow how do I get into this who you are has to do with what's your story what's your ideology what are your beliefs and so Wilde was saying, like, those things are implicated in fashion and in consumer culture. Mm. And, like, we, we educate ourselves through the consumer items that we use. Like, when I use my iPhone, it's educating me, saying, like, hey, get whatever you want right now. <laughs> Where do you want to go today? Want to look at this thing? Like, why don't you buy this? Click on this. Like, it's, it's influencing it. And, and even, like the movement of, I mean, it's designed specifically this way. It's almost like a, a little slot machine. Like you just keeps pulling down and then like you get a little fix, you get a little hit. Um, like these things are liturgies that educate us. Mm. And, and, you know, the Catholic church had always, had always done that. Um, and, and it, you know, the iPhone is dangerous. I, <laughs> I have been like captivated by it at times. So you have to like learn how to use it properly. Um, but, but, but yeah, once you learn how to use these things, and I, and I have an optimism that enough smart humans are going to figure out how to use these consumer items and these social media items that they're not going to destroy us and that we can figure out ways to use them productively. And do you see in Oscar Wilde's life or in his writings or in his ideas any lessons for that problem, you know, for how, how do we manage this, you know, uh, kind of crazed digital consumer culture aided and abetted by these devices that have kind of implanted themselves deeper and deeper into our souls in a way, you know, what, 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 it, what are the, the wildian, you know, lessons or insights on how to manage that? You know, I'm at a loss cause <laughs> there's a lot of problems with society and I don't know how to fix them. <laughs> um, and, and I, and wild, um, and sadly didn't live long enough to kind of develop them. He died at the age of 45, I think, um, amazingly. Um, so, well, maybe uh, one way to phrase the question is how do you get in front of the fashions and, and, and try to influence the fashions and manipulate the fashions and kind of, um, use consumer culture as, you know, how does one kind of maneuver in consumer culture in a way to, get one's ideas out there to get the truth and beauty to rise in the game of consumer culture rather than becoming a slave to consumer culture's manipulations. Well, I would take that in two steps maybe because number one, you have to um, train yourself and, and then number two, you need to be able to influence others. Um, and, just briefly on training yourself. I mean, Wilde said at one point, um, because I think it might have been in his prison letter, because he was in prison for his homosexuality. It was illegal at the time. Um, 
And I think it's there that he writes this letter where he, he says, if only I had access to the beauty and art of the church earlier, I could have trained myself to desire and to love those things more properly and like get my life in order basically. Interesting. Um, and not, he was, he was having multiple affairs and having all kinds of problems. Um, and so, uh, so that's one thing is we need to train ourselves. But then as you're training yourself, you're learning how to get in front of these things and influence others. And so, um, I mean, I, I guess part of it is embrace the beast of consumerism. I mean, like, um, you know, learn its techniques, learn how it works and, and don't run away from it, but like kind of dive into it. I mean, that's what he did. Um, and I think, I mean, let me throw in Tolkien here. I was talking to you, Tolkien, before we started recording, because mm-hmm. I think Tolkien in a bizarre way does something similar. He wrote the Lord of the Rings and, and it was published in 1955 and it essentially becomes the biggest work in English literature in the 20th century, probably um, in terms of sales. Um, and then it became this huge film. And even now there's like a new Amazon series, the rings of power, like that work was bigger than anything in a certain certain sense. Mm. And so how did he do that? He wrote to the masses almost, I mean, I I think he was deliberately writing to masses. He he had written the Hobbit earlier, um, which was a smash hit. Um, He wasn't even going to like publish the Hobbit, but CS Lewis, his friends like, you got to publish this stuff, man. And he publishes, it becomes a smash hit children's literature. Then he writes the Lord of the Rings. Uh, And he was, but he was writing for, for his, children and for the mass audience not just for a small coterie of like elitist academics kind of like Joyce was doing let's say Um, and and it worked Um, it worked both because he was he had an eye on that audience and he worked with the publisher and then actually to be honest the publisher helped him because uh, Tolkien getting back to Tolkien um, was writing the Lord of the Rings and he was writing the Silmarillion with it. And his publisher, um, I can't remember the name of the publisher, Unwin, I think, was telling him, no, no, we want the Hobbit stuff. We don't want that other stuff. And Tolkien said, no, no, I want to publish the Silmarillion. This is my, this is my best stuff. And they wouldn't let him publish it because it wasn't as good. I mean, it wasn't as popular. I mean, it's good stuff. You should read it. But, but they knew what was going to sell. And and in fact, in a way, they helped him because he married his serious writing, which was in the Silmarillion, with his popular writing, which was in the Hobbit and these little furry short guys <laughs> that, that that people loved so much, um, almost against his will. Because the, the, the publisher said, "Look, you got you got to put Hobbits in your work. That's what we want." And and so he did almost against his will, and that became this great work that was consumer, you know, aesthetics, I mean, or kind of aesthetic of consumerism Mm. that became, that's why it became so popular. So, um, but, and like Wild, they also became popular because they both 
had good stories that were rooted in ancient texts. Both of them actually were Oxford guys. Both of them loved like ancient Greek and Latin and Anglo-Saxon. So they had those stories and they, they kind of kept telling them and tell, told modern versions of them. So um, those stories, I mean, will continue to be read. Like in the marketplace of, of literature, we can see that they are continuing to be read and published, and, and I think they will continue to. So what you're saying is to take traditional works of art, traditional sources of truth and beauty and insight, and, and translate those into the contemporary marketplace is not a betrayal of classical truth and beauty, but it's actually doing, it's doing God's work. It's, it's even, yeah. it's even better to uh, translate them into ways that play favorably in the market. Um, this is necessary and important labor that, that is actually almost Christian in a way because you're doing the work of making that truth and beauty um, exciting and interesting and relatable to as many people as possible. Yeah, right. And, 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 um, you know, Christianity and speaking now as a Christian myself is a beautiful set of ideas that's in the church, but it needs to get into consumer culture, into the mall, into the, like the, the sports field, into the, like the fashion world. And, and that's the, that's, that's what we want. I mean, right. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that. You are a professor of English in Houston and you are also a member of Opus Dei. And right. I think Opus Dei, people have probably heard of it mostly through the Dan Brown novels, right? That's correct. Yeah. And so, so what, what are the biggest misconceptions that people associate with that? The, so in the Dan Brown novel, um, the Da Vinci Code, the, the Opus Dei numeraries, the, the, the sort of monkish figures who are celibate, I myself am one of them. I'm celibate, um, and I live in a community, are like self-torturing assassins and who wear robes. Well, I haven't self-tortured myself, nor have I assassinated anybody, and I don't wear a robe. But I if wear... you were, would you tell me? Probably probably not. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, like, when I got the job, so I get the job at the University of Houston downtown in Houston in 2005, the Dan Brown book had, was out, and the film was coming out in 2006. So the, the Dan Brown book was out. I mean, when I interviewed, I didn't tell them when I was in Opus Dei. I didn't hide anything, but anyway, it never came up. Mm-hmm. Get the job. I show up at work, and like five people were hired with me at the same time, so we're all talking, and, hey, where, where are you living? Oh, I'm living in this neighborhood. Oh, you're living in this. I'm living in Rice Village. And like, wow, how can you afford to live in Rice Village? Well, I live in a religious community that's with Opus Dei. Opus Day, <laughs> you're gonna have to explain that to us, man. So, like, and anyway, that led to a, a lot of conversations. And most people, you know, yeah, the vast part of my, the vast majority of my colleagues were totally cool with it. They were weirded out by it, but, but yeah. So that was the beginning of my academic career, and I'm still there, thank God. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting uh, story. Okay, so that's one misconception that people might have. But what what is the essence of that order or the the particular belief or message of that particular order that you, that drew you to it? Well, I guess I'll use myself as an example. So, like as I was saying, you know, the church can keep its ideas and its works of art in the church and in the Catholic schools. Um, 
but it can also go into the heart of a secular university like myself. And I think that's what Opus Day is about. Like, go to Wall Street, go to Hollywood, go to the fashion designing world. Like, that's where we need, you know, good Catholic thought mm. at work. Um, and in the English department, which is maybe the one of the least uh, <laughs> likely places to be, um, that's where it should be. And so... Um, that and, and you know, I think this is crucial, really, for the world. I mean, if I if I could say so about myself, that I'm an important person in this sense. <laughs> that that universities are kind of becoming monocultural and sort of one way of seeing the world, um, and it's kind of accelerated. Like in the last, you know, I, I got my job in 2005. I don't know if I would get my job today. Um, that um, things are kind of getting heated up. And it's harder to have really open conversations about things across the divide because there's no trust. And, like, how do you have a conversation without trust? Um, and, like, the friendships um, with people who have completely different views from you, well, that's what a university has to be. And if we're going to protect the university in the future, and I'm hopeful that we will, we'll, we'll need to do that more and more. So, um, so, yeah, I think that's also Opus Dei's mission. I mean, like... Yeah, so I can see the connection to Wild and this interest in, you know, uh, relating to and even operating on and within the, you know, base layer of just everyday consumer reality. That's right. Yeah. So I, I think that's I didn't really think about it too much. But yeah, that's I, I might 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 have been my my attraction to Wild initially, too, because, um, again, it was not the most likely thing for me to be studying. Like, I mean, people would think like, why don't you study like Dante or something, right. something like really Catholic. Right. Um, but I just loved Oscar Wilde. And um, I mean, I was also, I, I remember like taking an undergraduate class. I went to Columbia University as an undergraduate <clears throat> in New York City. And I was taking my English class. I was an English minor. And we went through the class. We studied a bunch of wild material and the usual things were brought up, you know, he was, you know, deliberately breaking the rules, very Nietzschean in his thought, kind of amoralistic, um, you know, art influences life, not life influencing art. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I was reading my book, and at the end of the book, it had a little uh, timeline of Wilde's life, and I'm reading through the timeline, and I get to the end of the timeline, and it says converts to Catholicism on his deathbed, nine, year 1900. And I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> and and that was kind of led to me reading more about his stuff, like to figure out where did that come from? Because it didn't seem to make any sense at all. Mm. But it really is at the heart of his work, I think. And have, have we done a good job of summarizing where that came from? Or are there other threads that I didn't ask you about to, to really account for that? I mean... Uh, I'll take a quick take on um, some of the other figures who uh, were interested in Christian thought um, at the time. A lot of them were French symbolist poets who were also kind of decadent. Um, they were even called decadent. I mean, that was sort of like the movement um, with Paul Verlaine and um, Joris Karl Huismans and Aubrey Beardsley, who was a, an English uh, artist and painter who was in that world as well. A lot of these men converted to Catholicism right around the same time. 
um, well, actually before Wilde did. Um, and so he could see that happening. And even like um, w- some of his English friends, like one of his English friends who was the model for Dorian Gray, the, the picture of Dorian Gray, was a man named John Gray, who was a poet, a young poet, who Wilde was actually interested in romantically. Um, but the guy uh, went off, became a Catholic, and became a Catholic priest. Um, and so these things kept happening in Wilde's life. So, um, yeah, it, w- it was uh, kind of happening all around him. And then one of his best friends was a guy named Robert Ross, who converted to Catholicism. Um, and he was the man who was really his best friend in the sense the one who really stood by him the most when he was basically dying in France and drinking himself to death in Paris. And as Wilde was really getting close to dying, he asked him, do you want me to bring a priest? And Wilde finally said yes. And so he brought the priest and that's how he was received into the church. And you've recently turned to YouTube. You're now publishing videos on the internet. Is this also motivated by a kind of similar worldview where you're, you feel called to, you know, bring your professorial talents to a broader public? I guess so. Although initially it's just partly just to, for the fun of it. <laughs> but yeah. I think, um, you know, I, I met you like a month and a half ago. Um, cause I had dabbled in YouTube and someone said, Oh, start making some videos, Paul. And, uh, about three years ago, I, I tried something that was kind of, I think I called it the Christian response to liquid modernity. Mm. Um, and I did a few videos there, but, yeah, I, I guess it is influenced by the same impulse. Um, I mean, it's also influenced by the fact that being an academic, and I'm at a university that we have a huge teaching load, so it's hard to get a lot of writing done. Mm. Um, and so this has been a nice boon because instead of writing an article, like sending it in, getting it back six months later, revising it, sending it in again, and then finally like two years <laughs> later it might get published – like I can write during the week, make a video on Saturday and post it right away. Totally. And so it's like, what the, why wouldn't I do this? Like, yeah. um, and like, okay, right. Some of my videos have like three views. Okay. <laughs> I'm still starting out, but at least some people are going to watch these things and I can promote it to my students and my friends. Um, and what's your goal with the channel? What are you, what are you talking about? What are you trying to do with it? Good. So I, I basically am doing a version of what I teach in class because I teach literature mm-hmm. and I teach literature in a secular university. So I, I'm not doing a Christian thing. Um, and, and I guess maybe that's also kind of like um, this kind of consumer aesthetics in a sense too, because like, I, I don't want to just, um, I want to talk to everybody. I don't want to just mm-hmm. talk to like the Christian audience. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think these stories are crucial to us like why do we have stories why do we have myths and why can we not live without them because we really can't and i can i think we're like people call it like a meaning crisis right now and i think we are really in a meaning crisis where we're searching for our story and because you know yeah i was talking about elliot earlier like okay yeah like the the medieval world of Dante, like everyone was Catholic and, or most people anyway. And so you had this unified culture and you could write a poem that was like of that culture. Um, we, we don't have that again and we're never going to have that again. And that's fine, but we, we still have stories and we still have, 
um, the ancient archetypal stories that, you know, as Freud and Jung were able to adduce, do help us figure out who we are, whether that's Oedipus or, um, you know, or Dante. Mm -hmm. And um, so what I was going to say, so yeah, so I guess I'm calling my YouTube channel at this point, I might change it, but at this point is myth and meaning. And it's about the search for meaning in myth and story. And, and like, why do we need stories? Why can we not live without them? How these things really are our only clue in this world to give us a road forward um, as we face like the, the tragedies and difficulties of life, the, the lack of meaning, um, the anxieties. And like, I, I, I'm, I'm with my students, like I, I'm often anxiety ridden too. And like trying to figure out how do I like get up in the morning and keep going? Um, and yeah, these stories are, are like, they inspire us. They, they show us a way forward. They show us ideals that we can strive for. Um, the challenges that give us the challenges that we can imitate, you know, we're imitative beings like humans sure. are. Um, excellent. Excellent. Well, people listening to this can search for Paul Fortunato and or myth, myth and meaning on yes. YouTube. And that should, that should bring it up. Yeah, I think, well, certainly Paul Fortunato, meaning it, it'll come up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that should do the trick. So, yeah, I recommend people go check out your YouTube channel. You just started it, but um, I think you have a lot of potential material to be covering over coming weeks and months. So um, I would recommend it. And I want to thank you for coming to drop all of these knowledge bombs on us about about the hidden Oscar Wilde. I The reason I was excited to do this podcast is because I didn't know much about all of this stuff related to, you know, I, I had the very basic um, conventional view of Oscar Wilde that we've pretty much decimated today. And, and um, when I learned that he had a deathbed conversion and that there were all these kind of hidden elements to his worldview that, that were kind of more sophisticated and intriguing than I had realized. Um, and I saw that you wrote a book about him. I wanted to bring you in to, uh, to disabuse me of my, my ignorant misconceptions. And this was a fun, uh, this was a fun walkthrough of, you know, yeah, that, that kind of more hidden and interesting, we might even say based or trad Oscar (laughs) Wilde that I I don't think, I don't think many people know about. So I think a lot of people in my audience will find this a surprising and interesting uh, discussion. So thank you, Paul. My pleasure. This was awesome. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So yeah, I think that's a wrap then unless there was anything else you wanted to squeeze in. Um, I, I gave a shout out to the YouTube. Is there anything else you wanted to? Um, yeah, well, yeah. So the, and I'm going to do literature. So right now I'm kind of working through like some theoretical background to like how stories work overall. Yeah. But then I'm going to just start doing long works and I'm going to spend a long time. Like in most people make like nice little five minute YouTube videos. I'm going to like go like 15 hours on like one Oscar Wilde play. Oh, you are. Okay. I'm going to like go through it line by line. I know that's a small audience, but at least I'm counting on that. No, no, that's great. I think think that that's epic and that that's really good. I think that's the kind of work that professors should be doing because you know, if you have what it takes, not many people can do that. So if you have what it takes to do that kind of uh, deep intensive work, then um, it's worth doing. So that sounds great. So that's a bit of a teaser on what people can expect. I hope people go and uh, follow you and, and see what see what's to come for you. So thanks again, Paul. I appreciate you coming through. This was fun. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. 
and it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.